following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. Uh, over the years, um, spoken on many different topics, preached on many different topics. I watched um, my last church, I spoke for about an hour and a quarter on the topic of sex, uh, during which I made uh, a lengthy excursus um, in this, uh, trying to make a biblical case for oral sex in the context of marriage. And uh, if that's offensive to you, I apologize. But I did. And I tell you, every single person in the church was engaged eye to eye, like uh, all the men especially were taking notes and getting verses to take back to their uh, wives later on. And, and, and people just kind of received it. There were even a few teenagers there. Before the sermon, I said, listen, this is going to get pretty graphic. Uh, not crude, but graphic. So if you need to leave, then do. No one left. Kids are learning about this stuff at school anyway, right? So, so that was fine. But I tell you, every time that I talk about death, people's heads drop, feet shift, they get embarrassed, they get nervous. You're not supposed to talk about death. In our culture today, death is the last taboo topic. And it's something I talk about regularly because the Bible does and because you've heard, probably if you've been here one week at least, that I talk about death, especially in the context of my mum dying when I was a kid because on the one hand it's very formative who I am today, but it also relates very much to the gospel. And so I talk about death and people get uncomfortable. That's the culture we live in today. In our culture today, death, the subject of death, the reality of death, is very much swept under the carpet. It's hidden from our eyes. And no other culture in the history of the world has had this kind of nervousness when it comes to death. Because no other culture in the history of the world has had death removed from their experience. I preached at my grandma's funeral a couple of years ago. She was 101 when she died. And so I was talking about the world that she lived in, born in 1910. And, and, I, and I mentioned this fact, which is astonishing, that in 1914, the world population was about 1.8 billion. Okay, so about less than a third than today's population. And yet, between 1914 and 1918, 100 million people died from the flu. 100 million people died from the flu. All right, and that fed into 1914 and following World War One, right? Death reigned for years and years, like gory, proper hand-to-hand combat kind of death. And at the same time, you're talking about maybe a third to a quarter of uh, babies dying at birth, mothers dying with them. So death was everywhere, and it wasn't just old people dying; it was young people dying, young men in the war, young babies at birth. And the flu just got everyone. So death was very much part of people's experience. You couldn't hide it. Whereas today, because of our advances in medical technology and so on, because of the the marketing machine, right, that knows that we will spend whatever it takes to stay young. Right? When my grandma lived when she was growing up, there was no cream to fight the seven signs of aging or whatever it is, right? That, it was just, that would be ridiculous. You don't fight aging. You live and you die just like everyone else. But today, the subject of death, and it's becoming increasingly so, that it makes us nervous that it's, that it's a taboo. And so where the subject of sex and, and homosexuality and and other previously taboo topics are becoming far more mainstream. The subject of death is becoming more and more swept under the carpet. And all of this is important because this morning we're going to talk about death. You heard in the reading that there is a man in the passage this morning who dies. And this whole series is focused around the man who most excruciatingly, most graphically died for us. And so it's important that we get our heads around this subject of death this morning. We're going to see that I think this passage has a couple of principles for us uh, that we can apply to our lives when it comes to this subject of dying and death. 
So with that being said, we're just going to get into the text together. And so if you go go to John chapter 11... We're just going to start at verse 1. If, you, uh, if you're someone who prays, then you can pray for my voice this morning. It's uh, debatable whether it's going to last. All right. John chapter 11, verse 1 to 4. This is what John writes. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and, and her sister Martha. Uh, sorry, beg your pardon. Wrong emphasis. Lazarus of Bethany, that's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That comes in the next chapter. If you're here next week, you'll hear about that. Whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So it gives us our context there for this passage today. The context is uh, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, well known to Jesus. The, uh, their sisters re- refer to Lazarus as the man who Jesus loved. Uh, lots of different people in the Gospels call themselves the, the person that Jesus loves, foremost uh, John in this Gospel. He's the kind of guy that everyone feels like their relationship with him is special. They know that they're particularly someone that Jesus loves. And, and uh, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, hopefully that's your experience as well. You are someone that Jesus particularly loves. And we go to their village, Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And uh, am, I, am I coming in funny on this uh, speaker? No? Okay, it's just me. <laughs> uh, I'm on a fair bit of cold medication, so <laughs> this could get interesting. Um, so we're in Bethany, that's their village. Jesus is well north. See, in the preceding uh, chapter, it tells us that Jesus went to the Jordan uh, where John was baptizing, and that's, that's about 150 k's to the north, okay? So they uh, find out, Mary and Martha find out that their brother Lazarus is sick. They are a very, very wealthy family. Uh, you can tell by the fact that in the next chapter, Mary anoints Jesus uh, with uh, some perfume that would have cost a year's wages. So just think about what you earn. Uh, take out your tithe and uh, what's left. That's what she spent on a bit of perfume to anoint Jesus with. Um, and and uh, they, we also see in this passage that Lazarus has his own tomb with a stone. That's like the Rolls Royce of tombs. Okay, It's like being cryogenically frozen today. Okay, Only the richest people get it. And uh, so that's what... Uh, these guys had. They have a lot of money and they have enough money to send someone the uh, four days trek up to G- uh, Jesus to let him know that Judas, uh, sorry, to let them know that Lazarus is sick. And so it's about 150 k's. A fit man would walk about 40 k's a day and so it's going to be about four days walk to get there. And Jesus receives the news four days after they send it that Lazarus is sick. And his response is interesting. He says, uh, categorically, this, this illness will not lead to death, but it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. That's a very interesting phrase. We've been talking about the fact that Jesus, his identity is first and foremost God in human flesh. And right now he just reveals himself once again to be the Son of God. God's going to get glory through this and the Son of God's going to be glorified through it. Now, it's interesting what he says because actually Lazarus does die, doesn't he? So is Jesus mistaken? No, he's not mistaken. What he means is though death will come to Lazarus as a result of this disease, that is not how it will end for him. This will not end in death. Something altogether different is going to happen at the end of this story, but we'll get there in just a little bit. And so he says... This is to glorify God. This disease has come to glorify God. It's very similar to what he said in chapter 9, verse 3. You remember the man that was born blind? He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. This happened 
so that God's works might be displayed through him. It happened for the glory of God. And so we see once again that God works all things for his glory, for his purposes, even the stuff that we, uh, that we wish wasn't happening to us, death and disease and so on, God will use, God will purpose, God will even ordain and decree for His glory because everything is about Him. We exist for His glory. And so this disease will come on Lazarus. It won't end in death. It will happen for God's glory. And not only for God to be glorified, but so that the Son would be glorified through it. That's an interesting phrase because it's the same phrase he uses in John chapter 17 where he's praying to God, praying to his Father right before he's about to be betrayed and executed. And he uses this phrase. He says, Father, I have glorified you, now glorify me through my death. And so for Jesus to be glorified means to be killed on a cross. And you're going to see what happens is, this is exactly what happens, Lazarus' sickness and his subsequent resuscitation happens for God's glory, that God's power can be seen, and it happens so that the Son, Jesus, will be glorified through his death because by going to Jerusalem, Jesus throws himself into the fire, so to speak, and it's there that he's killed. This is his last journey. From here on in, he's on the way to to death. And you're going to see when we pick up John uh, chapter 13 to 21 next year, that whole last half of the book is just about the last week of Jesus' life. It's all about his death. And Thomas gets that. Thomas gets it. Thomas knows that this is going to mean death for Jesus. And so he says pretty pessimistically but courageously in in verse 16, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. He knows that this is going to be the end. He knows that this is going to mean death for Jesus. And so it's going to be for God's glory and it's going to glorify the Son through his death. But they don't go right away. Jesus gets the news about uh, Lazarus being sick and he doesn't leave straight away. I mean, normally, uh, you know, this is a bit weird. Normally if you get news, mum, dad, they're in hospital, kids are, you know, at the doctors, you tend to drop what you're doing and go, right? You want to be with them, especially if they're on their last legs. You want to see them before they die. You want to sit with them. You want to hold their hands. Maybe you want to pray with them. But Jesus doesn't go. Verse 5 through 7 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and that's Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, was Ill he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. He hears about Lazarus being sick. He doesn't go. He waits two days. And and the translation here doesn't help us very much. I want to suggest a better translation, a more uh, literal translation is, now Jesus loved Mary and her sister Martha and Lazarus, therefore... Is, is, the, is the word. Not so, but therefore, which is stronger. He loved them, therefore, he stayed two days longer. That's weird, don't you think? It would make more sense to say, Jesus didn't really like Lazarus, he thought he was a bit annoying, therefore he stayed two days extra, hoping to avoid him or something. But John says very deliberately, Jesus loved them, Therefore, he waited two days. Now, what's going on? We'll see. Let's pick it up in verse 11 to 15. Jesus loves them. Therefore, he waits two days out of love. That puts it at six days since Lazarus fell sick. Four days to get the message to him. Two days waiting out of love. And then verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. That's a cool, cool saying. 
something a, uh, like an action movie hero would say. Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Don't judge him, you'd probably think the same. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant speaking, uh, taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so they start this four-day walk back into Jerusalem to see, to see uh, Mary and Martha and to go and be with Lazarus, who's now dead. So let's just figure out the timeline here because it's really important if we're going to understand this. Lazarus gets sick, four days to send the guy 150 k's up to Jesus, gets the news that Lazarus has been sick now four days, waits two days out of love, then tells his disciples, presumably through supernatural means, he knows that Lazarus is dead. And he says, for your sake I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. That gives a hint. And then he starts the four-day journey back into Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. I always thought that he, uh, he waited there so that Lazarus would be dead by the time he got there so that he could demonstrate God's power by raising him. But here's the thing. He's four days away, right? And it's two days after he hears the news that Lazarus dies. So whether he left at the time or left when he did, Lazarus is dead by the time he gets there. So, even if he left as soon as he got the news, Lazarus is dead, halfway home. So whether he leaves straight away or, or, or waits two days, Lazarus is dead, and dead is dead. So what's the point of the two days? How does it show that he loves him by waiting two days? To get this, you really need to know the context of the day. And here's the thing when it comes to death in our culture and the way that we treat death and particularly burial. What we do in our culture is weird to most of the people around the world and certainly weird to the most of the people who have ever lived in the history of the world. What we do by kind of taking a dead body and refrigerating it and then embalming it and then dressing it up and putting makeup on and maybe having an open casket and it's a week later or maybe two weeks Right by the time you organise an elaborate funeral and make sure people come in from overseas and interstate, it's just weird for most people around the world. And it would have been really weird for these people. In Jesus' day, you tried to do the burial, and everyone was buried in Jesus' day. For a Jew, it was the way that you did it. Um, and they buried you within a day, max. Right? You're in a hot Middle Eastern climate. If you wait more than a day, stuff starts to fall off. Okay, all right, and stuff starts to stink pretty bad. And so you get you get them into the into the tomb or into the ground, pronto. And so what happened uh, was, and this is documented historically, that every now and then, on the way to burying someone, within a day, they would wake up. Right, you'd be carrying them to the tomb and then hear a knock, open up, and it's Grandpa. He's back. Because in our day, right, you can't even be legally dead unless a doctor says so. You know that? You, like, you could be gone for a long time and you're not dead until a doctor says you're dead. In their day, they didn't have the kinds of doctors we had today and certainly not the technology to know whether that, that person was alive or dead. And so sometimes the guy looks dead, right? Grandma's, I don't know, she's not moving for a long time. And so on the way to the funeral, she wakes up and everyone gets freaked out, but... This thing happens from time to time. I heard of one guy, he's a biblical scholar who was teaching a class in England about 20 years ago, and he told them this, this fact, uh, historically doc- documented, and a, a really old lady in the congregation, this is like in the 80s, uh, she said, that's exactly what happened to my dad. He died in 1916, I think it was, and uh, they were on the way to the funeral, and they heard a knock on the casket, and they open it up, and Grandpa's alive, and he lives another 15 years after that. Can you imagine if you didn't wake up in time, right? And, and this, this kind of thing happened. Today, with technology, we can tell, you know, pretty certainly whether someone's dead or not. 
In their day, it wasn't the case. And so they developed this understanding of death in response to that occurrence. Now, before I share this understanding with you, um, I'm not saying that Jesus believed this. I believe Jesus knew exactly what death and life were all about. He had more understanding than the people in his day. But he's speaking to people who understand death in these terms. And so we've got a, a, a historical document, most probably, almost certainly from the first century, from these, these times. And it's a Jewish document um, that explains this understanding of death that they had. And it goes like this. I don't have a word for word, but it basically says, from death, the soul of a person hovers over the body for three days. And once it sees the signs of decomposition, of decay, it departs. So you die or you appear to die. The soul is hovering there just making sure when it sees decay, it knows death has come and it leaves to, to Sheol, to the holding place where souls go until the resurrection. That's the Jewish understanding. And so that, that understanding developed because every now and then people woke up. When the decay set in, they knew that wasn't going to happen. You're definitely dead. Just incidentally, this is why some people through uh, early church history doubted whether Jesus really died and was raised again. They come up with the theory that Jesus only appeared to be dead. And because it was only three days and not the fourth crucial fourth day, then he just came back alive. He just woke up. Called the swoon theory. Almost no one believes this today because people who believed that neglected to remember that he was flogged within an inch of his life the Roman punishment that would kill most people who endured it, that he was crucified on the cross and then he had a javelin shoved through his side. All right? So there's, there's not a lot of chance of waking up three days later. Okay? Just put that one to bed. But because it was three days, that's why some people developed that theory. It wasn't the crucial fourth day. Now that leads us to, to our context. It is made manifestly clear in a couple occasions in this text that, that uh, Lazarus has been in the tomb how many days? Four days. The crucial four days. What happens if Jesus arrives in two days? Oh, he, no, he's just one of these guys who woke up. That wasn't a miracle. He just, he, he, it was one of those, those weird occurrences. Jesus proves that this is a powerful miracle of God by waiting the extra two days. How is it loving? Because the most loving thing that Jesus can do for Lazarus, Mary, Martha, his disciples, and everyone there to witness it was to show God's power in this miracle. All right? So he waits two days. Now let's read on, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bang. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to uh, to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Jesus stays just outside of the city because he, he knows if he goes in, Just the sheer amount of people who are there mourning will will make it impossible for him to have the private conversations that he needs to have now with Mary and with Martha. In our context, because we've inherited a a sort of Elizabethan, Victorian, English sensibility around death, we, we tone it right down. We tone death right down. When someone dies, we say, we don't want to visit you too early because we don't want to make a big deal. During the funeral, everything's hushed, right? Just, just small whispers. If, if you're going to cry, for goodness sake, don't do it publicly, right? Make sure you've got a hanky. And make sure you blame it on a leaking roof or something like that. Just don't make a scene. That's the English way. Stiff upper lip. In the Middle East, it's the exact opposite. If, you're, if, you, if you contain yourself, you must hate the people that you're at the funeral of, Okay? It's the same in the Middle East today and in Mediterranean nations, in some African nations, right? Mourning is a serious business. And if you don't mourn well, then you obviously didn't love the people that you're there to mourn. And so in Jesus' day, 
there would be stipulations on what you must do at a funeral. And one of them was that you had to have, I forget the number, but it's a certain amount of flute players had to be there, not just at the funeral, but in the days after the person has died. And not like happy kind of flute music that I think of, but like dirges, right? And then if you're wealthy like these guys, you would pay um, weeping women, who, professional weeping women who would come and cry. And whenever it got a little bit subdued and a bit English, they would crank it up and get other people involved in the crying, okay? Just to, just to let everyone know that this is really sad. And so these guys being very, very wealthy people probably have a whole heap of people there just to cry and to mourn. And for them, it wasn't contrived. This was just how you mourn, how you show respect for the dead. And so Jesus knows if he goes into that context, there's going to be a million people everywhere crying. And so he stays outside of the city. And I want us to look at two conversations he has with these two women and what they reveal about how we should think about death. Okay, so first of all, Mary, uh, sorry, first of all, Martha. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him outside of the, the city. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Just a point on that. I don't think she means that in a mean way. Like, if you were here, why weren't you here? Two days extra, right? I think she just means, it's just the words of a woman who's in grief, who's saying, if only. If only you were here, you could have done something. You know, she has faith in Jesus. If only you were here, he wouldn't have died. Uh, if you were here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Don't read too much into that either. I don't think she means you'll be able to raise him from the dead. That's not her expectation. In fact, you see when Jesus goes to do it, she says, oh, hang on, he's been in there for four days. He's going to stink, right? Her expectation is not that Jesus is going to do this. It's again, just an affirmation of faith in Jesus. She trusts him. She loves him. Verse 22, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So her hope is that, yeah, someday he'll be okay. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and uh, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, "Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world." Massive, massive passage. We'll come back to that. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, "The teacher is here and is calling for you." And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary uh, rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same words as Martha said. They probably just talked about it in that private discussion they just had. How, you know, if only Jesus was here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Two things I just want us to see. On this subject of death and dying and our attitude to it, because God help us, we need some instruction. When I was doing a pastoral care course when I was at Bible college, we went into a hospital and they, uh, they told us a bit, these hospital chaplains, about how we should approach death and dying, knowing that 
we would be going into these contexts. And especially when I was ministering Doncaster, there's a lot of hospitals, a lot of dying people, and a lot of Church of England people, right? And so I got called into the hospitals all the time. I eventually got my own car park at Box Hill Hospital just from going in there and, um, and, and sitting with these people and praying with them and trying to encourage them. And I'm so glad that I didn't do what I was taught to do. Because in that course, what I was taught to do was these two things. First of all, talk about death with this person as, a, as it being a natural process. You know, death is natural. It happens to all of us. Reassure them with the fact that death comes to us all. That was the first thing I was told. Second thing I was told was, don't just go straight in there and talk to them about Jesus. The last thing they need to hear is you going in with a Bible and giving them verses and talk. They need to be comforted. They need to be, you know, they need to be listened to. Listen more than you talk. Now the fact is that at least most of the hospital chaplains that I've met aren't very familiar with their Bibles. I was going to say something stronger. I'll just leave it there, okay? I, they're the ones that I've met. And so I'm so glad that I didn't take their advice because Jesus does the exact opposite thing. He goes to two grieving sisters who have just lost their brother and he, number one, demonstrably shows that death is not natural and number two, talks about himself. Number one, verse 33. Our bad translations say this. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And I think this is the best translation of the Bible you can get. All of our English translations will say that. He was deeply moved and troubled. It's like the English version, right? It's the English funeral version. Greatly moved and troubled. The German versions... Have it right. Because the word means outraged. Outraged. You can imagine a German. Outraged, right? It's an angry language. Outraged. Not deeply moved and troubled, right? Wearing a tweed cap and sensible shoes. Now he's pissed. Outraged. Greatly outraged. Why? It's weird, don't you think? He weeps. He's outraged when he knows that he's going to raise him from the dead in three minutes. The reason he's outraged is because he's the creator of all things and he remembers when he spoke the creation into existence. existence, he, He remembers the beauty of a deathless world. He remembers the majesty of a creation where death does not exist. And he remembers the tragedy of the fall when death comes into the world. And he is outraged by it. He's outraged by sin. He's outraged by death. It's not the way it's meant to be. It's not the way that he created it to be. Death is not natural. It's a natural cause of events for we who live in the fall, but it's not Natural, it's not the way it's meant to be and it's not the way it's going to be. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the last enemy to be defeated is death. The enemy. Now I've been brought up in a context where we put every effort into making death not so scary, into putting death aside, to putting it out somewhere that happens to someone else. Death is scary. Death is wrong. Death is outrageous. Death is an enemy. But it's, an, it's a conquered enemy. So greatly outraged, Jesus weeps. He weeps. He weeps for the reality of sin in the world. It's one thing that the guy he loves is dead. It's far more, far more grievous to Jesus that sin is in the world. 
So death isn't natural. Number two, Jesus makes it all about him. He goes to a grieving woman and doesn't even, you notice, he goes to Mary and Martha, doesn't ask them, how are you doing? What was it like? Did he suffer? Was it peaceful? How can I help you? Can we organize a meal roster? None of that. He just talks about himself. And so we should talk about Jesus with those who are dying and those who are grieving. I'm not saying don't set up a grieving group. I'm not saying don't look at ways of counseling. I'm I'm not saying don't set up a meal roster. But if you do all of that without talking about Jesus, you're not doing anything. And so he says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know who will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to him, I am. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just point to Jesus. He doesn't just talk about resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. For those who believe in me, I am both life in this age and life in the age to come. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am so much the resurrection and the life. And and people who believe in me so much have resurrection life that even if they die, they won't really die. They won't ultimately die. Death won't have the last word. Eternal death won't take them. Eternal life will reign. I am the resurrection and the life. Now tell me, if you're on your deathbed and you're breathing your last breaths and you know that death is coming and your previous 80 or 60 or 18 years have been all about sweeping death under the carpet and now it's a reality and they've said to you there's nothing more we can do and you can tell in your soul that this is the end. Do you want someone to come in and and talk to you about how great your kids are and how wonderful your job has been and what a beautiful day it it is outside? Or do you want them to talk about Jesus, the resurrection and the life, who says, even if you die, yet will you live? I know a guy who died as a 17-year-old from cancer. And he loved Jesus. And I tell you, people who came in and tried to encourage him and, and, and cheer him up with stories about how good the surf was that day, he had no time for them. All he wanted to hear was John chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Psalm 23, Revelation. He wanted to know the reality of life beyond the grave because he knew that he was going there any day. Forget what you've learned in your counselling courses when it comes to how to treat death and dying people. Give them Jesus. That's all they need. That's all they need. So let's wrap this thing up. Finally, we come to the climax of the whole passage. All of that stuff is really important, but this is what we came for. Verse 38 44, then Jesus deeply moved again. Replace that. He's agitated. He's outraged. He's annoyed. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Mary, uh, sorry, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there is an odour. He has been dead four days. Four days. Four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Here it comes. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, 
but I said this on account of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice with all of that agitation and angst welling up and he said, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. John said that he wrote this book. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I've written this book. I've included these signs, what he calls miracles, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing in him, you would have life in his name. And that's exactly what Jesus just said. The people here would see these signs and in believing in him that they would have life in his name, eternal life. And so Jesus and John want you to see this sign of Jesus standing at a tomb with a guy dead and in the grave for four days wrapped up like a mummy or some kind of zombie, and then to say to him, Lazarus, come out. To yell through the stone, Lazarus, come out. And for a dead man to walk forth in the view of everyone standing there. That's a miracle. Yeah, people might be resuscitated. People might be revived minutes, maybe hours after they've lost their heartbeat, but no one comes back after four days. No one comes back after the stench starts seeping through the walls. Jesus yells a man's name and he stands up and walks forth. Lazarus will die one day, but not this day. And John structured the narrative very carefully and very cleverly. He's so subtle. But the sense of this is that as Jesus walks to his own death in Jerusalem, Lazarus is raised from the dead. That there is a substitution going on here. As Jesus willingly lays down his own life, Lazarus receives new life. And that's the pattern for everyone sitting here today if you're a believer in Jesus. Jesus has laid down his life so that you would have eternal life. Jesus willingly laid down his life so that you would be raised from the dead. Jesus laid down his life and was raised again so that he could call forth in each of our lives, in each of our experiences, Jimmy, come out. Jackie, come out. Right? That was our experience. Every one of us here has had a Lazarus experience, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. All through the Scriptures, you're going to see that we are described as people without Jesus, as people who are dead in transgressions and sins. Not just four days dead, but every point of our lives, every day of our lives, up until the point that God saves us from our sin, we have been dead and in the tomb and rotting. Stench. The stench of sin and death all over us. And then at one point, Jesus says, David, come out. 
and you suddenly say, I love Jesus. That's the power of the I am. When he speaks, we come forth. He willingly gave up his life so that we would rise again. And this day, to this day, he calls forth people from a spiritual tomb to have new life. If you're here in a few weeks, you'll witness Jackie give a physical demonstration on this stage of that fact. She will testify that she was dead in transgressions and sin. She knows it better than anyone. And that at some point, Jesus called in a loud voice, Jackie, come out. And then over the, a period of months, she came out. And then we're going to get her up here in the pool and we're going to dunk her down, demonstrating that she has died with Christ, that she's been buried with Him. And then we're going to lift her out, demonstrating that she's been raised to new life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You excited? Yeah, me too. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, this is the great truth. The sovereignty of God over our salvation shouldn't discourage us, it should greatly encourage us. Because here's the truth. You don't have to make yourself a Christian. The truth is you can't. You're dead. I'm speaking to some dead people here today if you're not yet a Christian. And here's the comforting truth for me. I can't raise you. I can't yell loud enough to raise you. But Jesus can. And so if you're hearing these words, and if you have any inkling in your heart to come out of the tomb, then this is the great truth. Jesus has already spoken to you. Jesus has already called you forth. And so now all you need to do is get up off that slab of stone and walk out, bandages and all. That's your act of faith and repentance. And so you can do that this morning. You can walk out of the tomb. The stone's been rolled away. Jesus has called you. Now it's time to walk out. And I say to the rest of us who are Christians, your day is coming. Your day of reckoning is coming. The day you die is coming. Creams that fight the seven signs of aging. Right? You can die with all the Botex in the world. Botox in the world. There's going to be a lot of stuff I'm going to ask Simon just to cut out of this. All right? so, I should get a few in actually and, and, and just edit it. Anyway, um, You can eat all the blueberries in the world. What was the thing a few years ago? Goji berry juice, is that still going around? Right? You can take up all of these fads. Your day is coming. And some of you have lived more than half of your lives. And it's not just the old ones. There are some little ones who won't see old age. If you choose to come anywhere near this intersection, you're likely to die pretty soon. This is a killer intersection. So here's what I want to tell you. Be prepared for that day. Do you know that the uh, Anglican Church, back in England a few hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago, it was known by this nickname. It's a cool nickname. It was known as the Assembly of Those Who Know How to Die Well. Isn't that cool? We've got all these cool names for churches now. That's a cool name. The assembly of those who know how to die well. If you go to the Anglican funeral service, that's why. It's just full of resurrection hope. Not platitudes and smarmy kind of, well, he, you know, he, he, he died doing what he loved or 
He's gone to the golf course and the sky and that crap, right? It's got sure, certain, resurrection, hope. And that's what you need to hold on to. That's what you need to hold on to. So may God make us an assembly of those who know how to die well. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those of us here who are believers. I pray that we would so trust in the resurrection life that you've already given us, the eternal life that we already possess. The eternal life, Jesus said last week, cannot be snatched away. That we'd be so, we would so imbibe that, that as we approach our dying days, that though death is an enemy, we would triumph over it. Though death is an enemy, that we would walk up to it with courage and with sure and certain hope. Lord Jesus, you are our forerunner. You died, you were buried, and you overcame the grave to show us that we too will die. We will be buried or burned, and we will overcome the grave. And for those who are here who are not yet believers, I pray that you would give them eternal life, nothing less. That you would call forth with a loud voice and that they would rise and walk out of their spiritual tombs just as we have. We thank you for your grace. None of us can raise ourselves from spiritual death. None of us is good enough. None of us is strong enough. None of us is free enough. It's only by your grace. It's only by your power. It's only by your electing love. And so I pray that that would be at work among us. We thank you that we've seen it with our very eyes. We've seen it recently with Aaron. We've seen it with Jackie. We pray for more and more and more evidences of your work in raising people from spiritual death. To you alone be the glory, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.